Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Radio Kyoto Koto listeners, Harimai, and welcome to Circuit Cast, a conversation about moving image and art from Aotearoa and beyond. This month in the pod, on the blower, we have artist Rebecca Ann Hobbs about her dance portrait project, Body Rock, in which she asks a couple of dozen other artists to shake their peculiar thing. And following that popular cultural thread, we ask what difference consumer mobile technology is making on art, with Max Slesher ahead of the third Mobile Creativity and Mobile Innovation Symposium. But first, to the core, to the heart, to the hub of our podcast, discussion and debate. The tempers, the tantrums, the feigned politeness as our critical panel looks at a no-hold-barred consideration of an exhibition. And here, this week, returning to the pod, academic and writer uh, Martin Patrick. Kia ora, Martin. Hello. And writer and my fellow curator and producer of public art program Letting Space, Sophie Jerram. Hi. Right, well, straight down to business, uh, Martin and Sophie. The item in question uh, this week is Soundful, curated by Caleb Kelly and Aaron Kleisler at the... Uh, it's currently at the City Gallery, Wellington. 16 artists from across Australia and New Zealand. And I was expecting a sound art show, but um, co-curator Caleb Kelly in the catalogue says, there is no such thing as sound art. It is an artificial division of the senses. Instead, he says, soundful is about the presence of sound, real and inferred, in all art. And he gives the uh, example of seeing a painting of a barn and smelling the hay, which I think is a little dodgy. But I would like to say at least Caleb Kelly is at least fully debunking this horribly old-fashioned term we carry around, which is visual art and, and the limits that has. What do, you, what do you guys think on all this premise? Well, well, it's a show certainly about sound. It may not be a sound show. It's a show, so about, show about sound, and I think it's really important to make the distinction in... in um, in contrast to his, I guess, his assertion that it's not about, it's not a sound show, is that we are used, habituated to going to institutions, public institutions that are full of visual material. So I do think it's it's important to say this is uh, this is an exhibition around sound, and I think it has a whole different series of resonances uh, for audience as a result. So yeah, I think this is a for me it really worked on a number of levels, but yeah. I mean, do we need, but you know, we, we're constantly engaging with participatory and video and performance work now, which is full of sound and vision. And surely this is something we all sort of take for granted now that the term visual art is, you know, somehow limited. One would think so, Mark, but w one thing that I found really um, interesting at the opening of the show actually was when um, uh, the artist um, Kusum Normoyle did a performance and she performed quite with this really, you know, um, uh, quite loud, um, for a lot of people, abrasive singing and shouting, screaming, and moving from one speaker to the other so that the microphone would feed back. And you, you had the impression that it was a real polarizing moment, that everyone's drinking their white wine, they're sort of uh, dressed up, ready to go to dinner, ready to sort of see this, this new ambitious show. And then, um, it seemed like it really put the brake on some people. They, they seemed uh, quite unnerved. And I, I thought that was a great moment. Really? Art, I thought that, that was the most cliched thing you could well, possibly do. Well, that's the thing, polarizing. So here we are. Absolutely cliched. I, I thought mean, it was wonderful. And I think cliched her videos sending a really clown terrific. in onto the theater stage. I mean, you know, I think it was really terrific because it's also a recontextualization of something that I would consider almost... Um, 
you know, status quo in certain kind of noise art, noise music uh, yeah. events. But in the gallery, I think it, it's sort of this transposition in which, uh, particularly on the opening night, I think it had a great, um, uh, just a nice feel to it because it broke that. There is a kind of um, uh, feel in the show towards the atmospheric. And mm -hmm. I think that was that more, uh, or the ambient. Uh, if I were to cite anybody, I would say it's less John Cage than more Brian Eno as the mm. kind of mm. uh, influence mm. on the mm. kind of mm. feel of noise and sound. That said, there is a lot of that guitar squealing feedback, which is, uh, you know, as I said, just such a hallmark. All, all, that, all that, you know, all the throbbing, thrusting sounds of industrial sounds bumping and grinding that we associate with sound art. There is quite a lot of that in the show. And it feels like it's very old hat to me. I feel like this work, is, there's a lot of work that feels like it could have come straight out of the 70s. Nice work. Fresh sure, work. but it's, it's important that, um, that Aaron and Caleb have actually pulled it together still to remind us that there are other ways to communicate. And I think mm. what, I wasn't there at the opening, but I saw the show in Dunedin, or I heard the show in Dunedin, and, I, and I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed it again <laughs> in um, Wellington. And I, I feel like the experience you have is a much more emotional one. I mean, I now, I recall, I recall the feeling of being in the exhibition much, much more greatly than I do the re recall, you know, various other exhibitions that have been at the City Gallery because I, wow. yeah, I had distinct emotional experiences um, within each room. And I think, you know, because sound bypasses the cerebral cortex, right? It goes straight into your memory bank, like, like smell does. Mm. So it's something that um, I, you know, there are various works in the show that you can relate to, others perhaps less so, but you know, they, because they're speaking to, to that, that um, part of you, that very, you know, pre, the, the, the almost reptilian part of you that mm. isn't dealing with your frontal lobes. I just thought I was getting too much of that kind of industrial, gloomy squeal and squawk, which is kind of this kind of very faux kind of gothic thing, and, and, and which is a kind of opt-out to me. It's like, it, I was reminded of um, the, the, the quote that came in my head, sound and fury signifying nothing, mm. the, the Macbeth quote. That's kind of, it, it's kind of work about that stuff rather than about anything. I found it incredibly I feel like we went to different shows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is I, good. This is well, good. I thought it was actually a lot quieter than that. Mm, I expected mm, more sound, more noise, more. But I think one of the interesting things uh, is the difference between, say, works that refer to sound or refer to music, as in the uh, scores that have been altered by um, uh, the artist Fusinato, Marco Fusinato, or uh, the fact mm. that the uh, some of them really engage with uh, the sonic impression, so uh, you know uh, that the visual is sort of cut down to some degree. But at the same time, uh, I think w what was really interesting about about the show is the feeling that in some works we're waiting for something to happen. There's this anticipation. Uh, probably one of the preeminent examples is in. Um, the collaborative work by Eugene Hansen, Jenny Gillum, and Dr. Cron, the uh, pseudonym of the designer who had um, done the visual work on the wall. And then uh, in that piece, you have these electronic alarm clocks that go off twice a day. And if you're not at the gallery in the middle of the night or the middle of the day, they're not going off. And you're just you're anticipating that that's the premise, but you're not there. And whereas I was in the gallery recently hearing all those clocks go off and it was a totally different experience. I had seen that piece multiple times, but without that 
I was very exactly. confused by that because they went off while I was in the gallery this morning and the time I, I assumed from the, the notes that they, they would go off at, at the times which were on the actual digital mm. clocks but they weren't no. connected and I couldn't couldn't get that correlation the, the yeah. correlations in that work were a bit odd for me mm. maybe mm. I'll, I'll, I'll check in with the artist but I'm not sure no I'm not <laughs> sure I didn't actually understand that work particularly well but I, I, I like what Martin's saying about the anticipation because I felt also that, the, that say the Vicky Brown work of the, with, the, with the, um, the sound of plants and music you know, where, where you're actually, you know, being brought, asked to, to help nurture and tend to these plants on the table. Mm. You know, there is an anticipation that what you, what you do through the microphone is actually going to have an effect directly on these plants in front of you. You might see them wave or you might see them flicker or, you know, there, might, there is a, and of course you can never tell. I mean, if, you, you, if you're Prince Charles, you believe that you're speaking to them will actually help them grow. But it's a, it's a temporal thing that you have to delay. Mm. Um, I yeah, I think that that, that sound um, having to think along these different lines about what's going on just changes the experience of being in the gallery entirely. Well, isn't this fantastic? We've got a divergence <laughs> of opinions in the room, which we didn't have last month um, over Francis Elise, which is fantastic. I mean, I have to say that you know there were works where I kind of not only was a lot of the work to me very old hat, well executed, but old hat in lots of places and not really saying a lot. I also read a lot of works where I questioned actually that there's a lot more complex, richer work happening in the popular art forms that they represent. So the uh, the work by um, Joyce uh, Henderding and, and David mm. Haynes, mm. I kind of went, well actually I think most video, mm. this is an interactive mm. work, mm. most interactive Wii based mm. games are more interesting than this. Totally. The Robin Fox work where, where sound is translated into videos. I, Mm. Into, to visual mm. image, I think. Well, actually, there's a lot more music video work that's more interesting than this. The the work by I think is it uh, Michael Graves involved a kind of a um, a harder darkness kind of trip with video audio. I kind of go. There's actually a lot more interesting work happening in filmmaking than this kind of area in the art gallery. I, so I'm kind of. Oh, that's the, no, the, the Greyburn. That was Greyburn. No, 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 Greyburn. No, sorry, the, Michael Graves was yeah, yeah. was a, was a painting uh, work. Well, I thought I, I thought that was a that, that was an interesting piece, but it. In a sense, it made me think, you know, I was going to step out into a video show because in a sense, uh, video projection has become one of the, the characteristic forms that you see in so many biennials and triennials and art exhibitions these days. One of the things that um, I think was interesting about the show is this idea that maybe all art has sonic components if one pays attention and, and, and they're highlighted in some degree. Um, years ago, most a lot of my research was on the conceptual art and conceptualism of the 1960s and 70s. And then one artist told me, well, isn't all art conceptual? And on, on a certain level, mm. you can say that. And I was thinking about that when the catalog essay by Caleb Kelly, where he says sort of all, you know, in a sense, all art is sound art. You know, that there's no such thing as a sort it's, of segregated. It's bollocks, Matt. It's yes. bollocks. Just because Michael Morley, who's an art musician, paints us, you know, some lovely twin paintings of Marshall stacks. I, I don't suddenly hear the squeal of sound coming out of them. Just well, I thought I that was one like of the, the, um, I mean, yeah, the most tenuous yeah. assumptions yeah, was that if we look at something visual, we're going to imagine there's a literalism to that mm. notion that I thought was a little... Uh, yeah, tendentious and overdetermined in some of the curatorial um, information. But as we were sort of um, discussing earlier, it seems like sometimes one of the interesting things is to have a a broad, maybe overarching curatorial premise in which 
some of the works totally escape that or they, they're not really integrating into this but but it allows a context for a lot of these things to happen I do mm. think it is uh, I was thinking about how the fact in the catalog for example and in in the gallery there's very little historical global information on the background of sound art mm. though it's noted mm. in the catalog that there's so much writing about that at the moment um, historically but at the same time I thought w one of the interesting things about the show is it does highlight very important um, artists from uh, Australia and New Zealand mm. uh, Phil Dodson who of course is is a uh, uh, senior uh, artist here in New Zealand but is still um, gaining more attention you know probably in North America and other places so well, I, lo I love the Phil Dodson work and it's you know it's part of a series I guess of work that a lot of audiences are probably more familiar with and I like the fact that it is a you know it's a video work but sound is is subtler and it's there in a, in a really rich way that he actually pays a lot of attention to all those those different aspects. I mm. mean, that would have been a highlight mm. for me of the show. Definitely. I, th I felt like um, it reminded us of how sound is greedy um, it, and and therefore, you know, to have a whole room, going back to the, the work by Brent Grayburn, to have a whole room with four channels on those massive walls, you know, was epic and it suddenly it actually brought me an awareness of of the the value of that space of that public space which right. is city gallery you know to to get a four channel four channel video work like that you know you'd pay normally whatever fifteen dollars to go to IMAX to watch it something mm. as rich as that mm -hmm. you know so actually how exciting to have an amazing experience mm. and so and and good on them for being greedy yeah. with that space and time and I I guess it just I felt like the curators were, were, were generous with allowing the artists that space, and sometimes it didn't work. I mean, for example, at the opening, I understood that uh, the work by um, Torben Tilly and Torben and um, what, Robin, Robin Watkins. Robin Watkins, yes. Um, you know, you couldn't hear that work at all because it was being dis you know disguised by the you know it was in the passageway and it's mm. being disguised by people talking. But but there's a kind of a, a fumbling attempt there to to get in touch with the, the other worlds, you know, beyond this one here and the psychic worlds. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a need, it's almost like an attempt to, to broadcast from that, See, that, 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 that work. That whole psychic thing, that spiritualism thing, that was a bit of a vein through a lot of the work in this show to me. Um, to me, it's just an opt-out. It's an opt-out of actually really talking about things that kind of matter. It's a safe zone for artists to work in just as a squeal of feedback is. You don't feel that? You think there's there's something in that that we could we can get touched and affected by? Because well, I don't get affected said, by why it. why this show any more than any other show for in that well point yeah. you know I I think it well was there's a lot of it it's rife in the contemporary arts and I just think it's a very safe safe region for artists to dabble in. Oh, I, I disagree because I think that it's it's how artists deal with any kind of phenomena and the sort of metaphysics and I think it's interesting that I I almost think it's a um, move towards the fact that um, just as there's a lot of artists with um, so-called political and social practice artworks now, there's a lot of interest in in metaphysics, in um, quantum physics, in the um, in sort of new and alternative uh, healing spirituality, and a lot of things. And I actually didn't think there was that much mm. a reference to okay. that, but, th mm. but there is a feeling that that the incorporation of that, which is happening in the public sphere and happening. Uh, in people's lives would be coming into the gallery. But one thing I was thinking about also is that in some of those more immersive spaces uh, is feeling that, uh, and, and in, in Dadson's work also, that this 
feeling almost of a confusion and vertigo from the visual or uh, video and, and digital imagery mixing with the sonic imagery such that it kind of throws you off guard a little bit, just sort of like the way you can be off balance if your inner ear is, <laughs> is affected or you've just come mm. off a, a long plane flight or something like that. The sort of the notion that that interior space that we think of sometimes as, a, um, as cognition is also so affected by the sensory. And I think it was a, uh, in, in terms of this, this um, title of the show, Sound Full, it was full of a lot of sensory uh, input and I think that that's interesting why uh, you're you feeling that that it wasn't engaging with certain things because it uh, you know um, uh, perhaps it, it was just on a certain vein that that isn't quite you know the one you're you're, you're interested in mm, traveling on mm, <laughs> absolutely and I, and I, right. yeah, yeah I really yeah. celebrate your point Sophie around that use of, of, of public space mm. yeah. but it, and I think it's I mean I suppose the thing that I've always thought was missing in in Wellington public spaces is it is a place to be a bit more meditative you know right? and we don't in New Zealand we're, we're a very secular society so we don't have yes. churches you yes. know or mosques that we can just easily pop into um, so, so having a, an exhibition like this, was a, which is a bit more meditative, and even crawling inside Thimby Soddle's um, little black box, you know, yeah. and finding that it was very John Cage kind of work, but to actually just, I, I really enjoyed my, you know, few minutes in there, just experiencing the, the deadness of that small black box. I think, I think that it's really nice to be brought into a different state of being in a public space. I enjoyed that very much, although as my producer remarked, he felt there was not much difference between that and you know having those surround sound headphones that a lot of people do actually escape into already. So it's, it's an interesting one, that, that but I, I do like the idea of the public gallery as a communal space for having those kind of reverent experiences that we have through headphones. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, thank you. Um, we've run out of time. Um, thank you, Martin and Sophie. That's really, really interesting. Um, that concludes our panel. Soundfall at City Gallery Wellington is on until February the 9th. Well, you're listening to Circuit Cast, and we now move right into Rua, part two. Max Slesher is an academic at Massey University, engaged in mobile and social media technologies and how they're used in creative practice. He's the founder of MENA, the Mobile Innovation Network, Aotearoa. It's a group that organises exhibitions, symposia, DVD publications and the like, all showcasing work that uses the camera and wireless capabilities of your average iPhone or Android to create work. Welcome, Max Slesher. Hey, now, from November 18th to the 22nd of this month at AUT in Auckland, you've got a series of events exploring mobile technologies in film, education, business, and creativity. And the symposium is centered around a question, as I understand it, how are mobile and social media technologies used to create innovation through creative and cultural practices? Now, clearly, everyone all over the show is, is recording Moving Image on their mobile devices now. Um, can you give us some examples of innovation in terms of this sort of work? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the, the quite interesting thing for this year, for the MENA Symposium, is that we had the last two years in Wellington, and this year it's become um, sort of a bit broader. So you also look into some practices that deal with sort of uh, mobile pedagogies, for instance. There's um, some colleagues that have produced uh, some iBooks uh, on like uh, tablets, and then you'll have also, of course, sort of the 
things that with Mina really has a history for like a sort of mobile filmmaking but also taking pictures sort of iconography which has become sort of a quite big international field and also some other practitioners doing a bit more some experimental things we've got this year also some um, ideas of mobile games and sort of spatial projects where people do audio walks for instance Okay. Well, when you say, I mean, iBooks, iPhotography, all those things, as I say, the things people are becoming very familiar with, what are the, how are the projects actually innovating with, those, with, with this kind of new technology? Well, I think there's sort of, um, there's, there's sort of two, two areas that we're really keen on. So one area is that um, creative people use existing technology and give it some slight different ideas, sort of how to work with sort of, for instance, you know, sort of uh, GPS technologies, give you some different ideas how to work with sort of yeah sort of thinking about sort of the practices that you have for mobile filmmaking which means also to engaging communities for instance that normally don't have access to mobile filmmaking so it's sort of also thinking about new forms of participation and collaboration mm. so it's not just really like thinking about new technologies but also giving sort of a a bit of a slightly different meaning to what this technology can really do so some of the projects actually putting the filmmaking into the hands of people who aren't who don't have those who don't have that technology to hand is it sort of yeah so um we've done a few projects sort of in the last years where we actually exactly what you just described try to do so first sort of we're working with sort of some um, community groups in Auckland or also some uh, community groups in Wellington and so we did a few mobile filmmaking workshops and there's also a workshop hacking on Monday Tuesday so for people who are really interested to engage with a sort of new form of creative practice they can also come to the workshop which is um, leading up to the symposium so it's on the days before that. And then there's a screening on Thursday, Friday, which are also open to the public, that people can really engage and unlearn and understand what these sort of new practices are about. And uh, the screening program is an international creative screening program of um, a number of different uh, films. But I think what, what I'm really sort of excited about is that there's uh, two or three films which are from really first-time filmmakers okay. that have sort of, you know, decided they want to make a film and the mobile phone was a camera that they had in their pocket and I guess that is a distinction that suddenly the, this is as, as happened with the still camera that, that suddenly everybody can afford to be doing this kind of work in some yeah. way or, or can be given to, or at least can be given that opportunity yeah. and so we did a, a one workshop in Hamilton yeah. and um, one of the outcomes from that workshop is now in, in the part of the international screening program so I think that really shows that if you want to tell a story what, what we are really interested in is sort of teaching some of these forms of what some people call digital literacies. So it's some forms of digital storytelling and um, sort of thinking about some conceptual approaches to editing, how these things can be pushed or like leveraged into this field of social media. But then the program is really quite, I think, quite exciting. And we've got people also at the symposium that talk about some, uh, some other areas such as mobile games and um, sort of, yeah, sort of how to engage people in, in creative practices. Mm. So some some elements are more focused on um, the aesthetics, but there's also some panels that deal very much with uh, the politics and sort of what happens of sort of what we might know from citizen journalists. So for instance, there's one paper that explores when people in South Africa have access to camera technology and they can suddenly capture, you know, sort of images and videos that have a quite significance for them that maybe would not reach the media scape mm. in another way well call, call, call me devil's advocate yeah. but you know participation collaboration audience driven all these things are great but you know is it good art is it good journalism is is the citizen journalism great participation great but you know there's also a big 
there are big challenges around you know actually the quality and actually the training that goes into in, into this i mean is is this good art or is it in some sense good design or is it just a blamange of kind of you know yeah. everybody doing it well i mean it's sort of i guess it's sort of the same argument that you could say is is everyone that has a, a typewriter a good uh writer you know yes, so yes. just because the typewriter was older did it mean that we had more people making a sort of book publication so for is there like a training of course but I think the the key difference between that is that we can sort of have here a very much a visual discourse and I think there is some um, very distinctive sort of you know practices being put in place now that people especially very young people they sort of use Instagram um, very much and we can see that there is something happening also in the field of communication so you know sort of we used to have sort of text messages that create sort of a new language when we think about sort of the smileys and mm. the short forms but suddenly there's also things like snapchat so that shows that things are becoming more and more visual mm. and of course everyone these days is tweeting and some sort of some new apps that are out there they sort of use the sort of um very much visual media so that you can sort of you know uh, like vine or winklen that you can produce short videos and short photography elements and so of course these these projects are there, but I think the really interesting thing what sort of Mina does is it showcases how different people use this technology in sort of quite interesting in quite interesting ways. And I think that's where these projects come in. So there's some um, two or three projects that deal very much with the sort of um, on one side this sort of new aesthetics that have been introduced in the okay, media. Okay, well let's talk about that a bit because I, I can see how yeah. the quantity explodes and the, the participation and the quality and and where the innovation is is really interesting to to, to hear about. I mean, new aesthetics. I mean, what is that? Why is this different from? Why aren't the same? I mean, you've got a workshop there on on techniques. Yeah. So why are the techniques different from the traditional filmmaking techniques, for example? Why are the aesthetics different? Yeah. Um, so I mean, with sort of, I think uh, that's sort of from the perspective that I've been very passionate in my own research about as well, and where I've just um, coming this year has been quite good. Three publications forward, actually. Yeah. So what I sort of um, described as sort of the kaitai aesthetic, sort of um, meanings of the pixel aesthetic. That's aesthetic. Yeah, so that, that like when you think back that sort of mobile phone filmmaking now is almost a decade old, right? So when we had sort of the first pictures of the things that happened, um, you know, it was some newscast media when there was no cameras around and suddenly, you know, pictures tweeted sort of um, pictures, pictures of the London uh, bombings, for instance, in the underground became the press photograph of the year. But they were these sort of quite blurry pictures and you've got all these sort of, you know, um, project that would sort of show pictures from, you know, sort of streets, you know, street things happening in Egypt and the sort of, you know, the Green Revolution and sort of, you think about, they, they are sort of like, they have like very much like a social value, but they what they also have, which we shouldn't forget, is they have very much their own aesthetic in terms of the way that these pictures appear on the big screen, on the small screen. Mm. And sort of the 3G was, in the first case, very much, uh, yeah, like an amateur format that wasn't really considered as being sort of, you know, uh, a filmmaking format. And of course, nowadays we've got cameras that have, or like mobile phones that have the same format, like an HD camera, which are sort of quick time video quality. But I mean, this is this is the history of art, right? And history yeah. of design that new new technologies continue to replace the old ones. I mean, why why would MENA silo it off into one area, right? You know, is there a danger that this kind of becomes siloed off in, into a sort of a slipstream rather than actually is the kind of mainstream in terms of what's going on? I think actually it's it's now reaching out into sort of a, a much more broader field that if you think about some of the the projects that are in a screening program, they're actually 
on one side you've got some uh, quite established uh, filmmakers and um, designers, photographers making moving image work. Um, they've done that for like let's say 10 years now. But you've got also lots of yeah sort of um, a new generation of, of I would say sort of international filmmakers coming out, and that's also that's also like, you know a big scene of international film festivals. And I think that is really where sort of mobile phone filmmaking is now positioning itself in that sort of broader field. But I mean, this year for Mina is really is about broadening the whole the whole program. So it's not only mobile phone filmmaking, but also talking about some of sort of you know um, the sort of uh, spatial implications that it has, and sort of very much sort of I think networking practices. Collaborations always a, a bit of a buzzword at the moment in the art world, at least, and it's it's part here in terms of collaboration yeah. but I mean how, how uh, surely collaboration has to be more than just bringing these networks together or bringing work from different places together is there a little work that's actually kind of truly collaborative in terms of the work being shaped by each other's input like a sort of open source kind of way of working yeah I mean there's there's um th that, that of course is thing that is uh the sort of these network practices they are like for instance there's quite a few projects that deal with sort of new html5 technologies in which they, for the first time, allow really to have video being online and link different videos together in a way that we couldn't do this before. Mm. But I think which is always very um, quite interesting with most of these uh, projects, also very much my own practice, is that it's sort of um, a tradition of uh, creative practices is continued. So if you look into the, the presentations, you will see that sort of, um, I think quite a few people will reference uh, sort of filmmakers that have been around for quite some time or things like database cinema, or you could even go back further to some constructivist filmmakers, and they think about these practices, and they will leverage them forward into the digital space. So well, I was interested in something you said in a, in, a, in a lecture, which was about how some of the non-linear narratives kind of connect up to early experimental filmmaking, and yeah. what's going on. I mean, for sort of um, my own research, what I think very definitely is always very interesting to think about some of the very conceptual filmmakers, like Gigaberto, for instance, whose who's approach back in uh, you know the 1920s was truly collaborative in terms of they would produce films on trains and then develop them in right. the, develop them on the trains that they could show it in the next village yes, and they would yes. use people as part of this sort of you know documentary approach and so i think what what i'm quite always quite interested in is not reinventing the wheel but looking back into these practices and sort of they provided like quite very much an alternative and lever leveraging this forward into the digital space Finally, Max, with the, with the, with the uh, event you've got coming up, you've got uh, two keynote speakers, Helen Keegan from the University of Salford in the UK and Larissa Schorf, if I'm saying that right, from RMIT in yes. Melbourne. Um, I mean, what do these visitors bring to New Zealand? What can we learn from them here in New Zealand? So um, we're very excited, first of all, that they can, can make it. And sort of um, Larissa Hjord has sort of um, a very much an established practice as a researcher. And she has a quite interesting record of publications that really deal with mobile media as a creative practice. And um, Helen Keegan, she will be really like uh, sort of talking about these sort of new forms of collaboration and participation that you talked about. Okay. Hey, thanks for joining us, Max, yeah. and best of luck with everything in Auckland. Yeah, great. Cheers. Tahi Rua Toru, part three. You're listening to Circuit Cast, part three. Views, voices and debates on artists moving image in Aotearoa and beyond. And uh, on this part of the show, we usually phone a friend somewhere else on the planet 
And this week we dial into the Big Smoke Auckland and we talk to Rebecca Ann Hobbs about her dance portrait project Body Rock in which she asks a couple of dozen other artists to shake their particular thing. Hi Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me and thanks for the invite. That's cool. Okay, um, Body Rock, Morris Dancing in Japan, Finnish Dance Instructions, uh, Punk Bopping to the Enemy. There's all kinds of dance stuff that I've seen on the on the Tumblr account you've got there, danceportraits.tumblr.com. Can we start by just quickly describing this fascinating little project of yours? Yeah, I see the, each of the videos as a portrait. And they're based on a, a set of instructions. What usually happens is if I'm at an opening or hanging out with mates and we have a, a conversation about dance, I will usually ask them if they would like to um, participate in the project. And by participating in the project, I give them a set of instructions and then they follow those instructions to create a um, approximately 30 second clip of them performing a specific dance genre. What are, what, are the instru- what are the instructions, Rebecca? Basically, one instruction is to film yourself performing a dance move in your home, to set up the camera anywhere in the home and use in any way, but don't edit. No post on um, is applied yeah. to the portrait. And once they've identified a genre that they want to perform, they perform the, the dance within their home and record it, on a home device, it can be a computer, a mobile phone, or a camera. They need to contextualise that dance with a written paragraph. I guess what's interesting here is that you've got this installation, you've got this work as an installation. I mean, it's obviously referencing that whole YouTube phenomenon of viewers sharing and learning, learning new dance moves. Um, so I guess yeah. I was quite interested to know what the point for you was of elevating it from that kind of private or collective private YouTube space into the gallery. The reason I wanted to show it in the gallery it's a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is that in the past I've been a gallery practitioner, like a lot of my work gets resolved within a within a space. So part of it was continuing my own lineage within my own practice. But then another part of it was that I wanted to see the work in a more spatial way. Yeah. So what happens with the work is when you walk into the space, 12 of the videos, the sound is through headphones, but the sound is loud enough that you can just hear it without headphones on without headphones on so each of the videos you can just hear the sounds that are being created within the videos without putting the headphones on and it creates a sort of oral soundscape as you move through the space okay and some of the clips have like accentuated points like the one the sunday fever with robbie and natalie (laughs) yes Um, natalie medlock yeah well, he does a bit of a cat call halfway through, and, and that, that sort of punctuates the space. And then with the Morris dancing, um, with the bells that Matthew's wearing, <laughs> yeah, they, they're yeah. quite high-pitched, and they come orally, they sort of pierce the space. And I really like that there's this little, like, sort of a lo-fi cacophony happening with the sound. It's a body rock mashup. <laughs> a body rock mashup. But I, I also like, you can sort of step back and see all... 10 videos going at once. Right, yeah. And they're on a loop. So they sort of occupy a more tactile and three-dimensional space, more so than what they do on Tumblr. Right. So there, so there is there is a point then to the, to the installation kind of environment of, of doing it then in terms of being able to really extend, I guess, the aesthetics or, or you know, the ideas. 
Yeah, it's a more spatial um, consideration, but it's also that public consideration. Like um, with Tumblr, it's quite a private experience when you go through and you watch each one separately and independently and then read the paragraph. But with it all sort of laid out, it's more spatial, but it also has a public presence more so than the Tumblr, which is quite private. Yeah. I guess this, this to me, it all sounds like it's interesting in its connection with what I understand is an interest of yours, which is what happens to meaning when a specific culture travels to a different location from where it originated. And I mean, I'm imagining the response to your work is very different on Altara or, or how people respond to stuff on the internet to it is, say, at the Dallas Art Museum or St Paul Street or, or the Film Archive. Yeah, the responses are really varied. And the works are from all over the place. We've got Chris Hill in Melbourne performing a Jamaican sort of gothic dancehall dance. And then you have uh, El Salvadorian um, mother and son performing a, a sort of Spanglish song in Melbourne. And then even Robbie and Natalie performing a, a Samo and Siva in their lounge rooms in um, Grey Lynn. So it's, it's weird how things coalesce and come together and mm. how the, an audience reacts to them in the different spaces. I'm really interested in how knowledge is transferred and how it becomes manifest in a separate space. Yeah. Especially with dance, because dance is such a physical endeavor, but also it usually has a um, a reference to the cultural, social, geographical location from which it comes. So if you think of the Alex Richardson, he's doing Baltimore club dancing. What's that? Is, <laughs> <laughs> Baltimore club culture it, it comes directly from Baltimore and it's wow um, so it's distinct to Baltimore mm. it's distinct to Baltimore both the musical genre and the the dance wow and it's really interesting how say for example Alex films Joshua performing these moves and they're like socially and culturally significant to Baltimore and then putting them on the internet and then having people in New Zealand or Tara performing these same or moving or learning these vocabulary dance vocabulary and then performing them out here mm. or in on k road or I, th- I find it really interesting how it yeah how it becomes manifest i, I noticed that you've also i understand you've got documentation of a workshop that you had in otara last month uh, with altercation a new orleans based dance performing educator yeah well i thought that because i was engaging with an exhibition and in a public space that I too should do a portrait and I too should be involved in constructing a work. And so I've been really interested in this dance movement called Bounce. Mm. And there's specific bounce artists, MCs, who I'm interested in, in particular Katie Red and Big Frida and Sissy Nobby. I approached Big Frida's dancer, um, her name's Altercation, for her to conduct a workshop, a bounce workshop via Skype. And then I invited mm. a half a dozen of people who had already expressed interest in the, the dance genre to participate in the workshop. And I filmed altercation, giving the lecture, and then us trying to learn the moves. Right. So it's, it's like a two-channel work. The interesting thing with altercation, she insists on contextualising the workshop before people engage in the workshops. And she contextualizes um, bounce in a few different ways. She contextualizes it within a post-colonial dialogue, and she also contextualizes it within the post-Hurricane Katrina community of New Orleans. Wow. 
And one of the main things they talk about is using celebration to overcome violence. And she talks about, she calls it unleashing the puritanical chastity belt that we've all been given um, from a dominant Western (laughs) culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so she, so we, what we did was she spent an hour talking about the framework in which she contextualizes bounce, and then we spent about an hour and a half learning specific moves from from the from the dance. And do you think people? Opinion. Do you think participants? What do you think participants got out of that? I mean, is there a real sense of a kind of some synergies going on there? That oh yeah, it was it was quite an emotional experience, both for altercation, mainly for altercation because she's. She's a really generous person and quite outward with her emotions. And she, she at the end, she said that she felt like crying, which I, I was quite overwhelmed with in that I wasn't expecting that sort of reaction from, from her. Wow. But from from our end, it was really interesting because well, the people that I had invited were people who, had, who already formed post-colonial positions within their own practice and ways of engaging in the art world. So mm. it was important that the people who I invited had already delved into this area and had and had their own experience of it. And it was also important that the participants in Otara um, were already engaged in dance in some way, whether that's through their own work or their conversations or just socially, like having had dance with them in the past. There's something fascinating also about the use of, of Skype to actually do something so directly. There's such a fundamentally interesting you know direct use of the of the the whole the whole digital medium yeah well skype sort of seems like the sister of youtube in a in a way yeah yeah Hey, yeah. hey, just before we finish, Rebecca, it's interesting, of course, also that I, I understand you're an Australian living in, in South Auckland, and I, mean, I was quite interested as how how did you get so embedded in the whole South Auckland community there? Well, it was by accident more than anything, because I grew up in a rural community in far north Queensland, and then. Uh, I did my undergrad down in Melbourne and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to LA. And then um, I had to sort of come back to this part of the world and I just, I decided to come to Auckland. And then once I got a job here in at MIT in Ortara, I decided to, that I would make that community a community that I would be involved in heavily, right, both yeah. living, living, teaching and with it, like the dance community in South Auckland is amazing. Wow. Like they they do really really amazing things on a on a world platform. Like they, mm. Paris Gobel from um, Palace Dance Studios is is renowned around the world for her abilities within dance and what she's doing, which is really amazing. Well, it's really exciting. It's really exciting to see all those worlds coming together, particularly with the art world and. Um South Auckland so becoming so much on the on the map and you know all that stuff coming. So thank you for your work, Rebecca. No, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. And that completes Circuit Cast for the month. Thank you to our guests. We look forward to talking again next month. Circuit Cast has been produced by circuit.org.nz with the assistance of Creative New Zealand with music from Orchestra of Spheres. Are they there?